and actually this is another decision trap you can fall into, you can find any pundit who's going to agree with what you think. And this of course leads to a huge amount of confirmation bias in decision-making. But whatever decision you make, make it as a considered one, not because you just don't know what to do. Thinking it through and trying to decide, you know, what's a good long-term strategy will almost invariably put you in a better position or at least less of a bad position than if you let the market happen to you. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the fourth season of Ready to Scale. I'm your host, Ellie Perlman. Real estate investing is not rocket science, but it's not a fairy tale either. It's an incredible investment vehicle that builds and grows wealth. I have done it, and this is why so many of the wealthiest people in America and in the world, actually, invest in real estate as well. Listen in every week to learn about all the different real estate asset classes, which strategies experienced and successful investors use to live their best lives, and the processes to do it. Don't reinvent the wheel. Just listen in every week to grow your knowledge along with me and to move your finances to a place where you can live an extraordinary life. This show is sponsored by my company, Blue Lake Capital, where we help passive investors grow their wealth through large multifamily investments and funds. To learn more about my company and invest in with me, visit www.bluelake-capital.com. Welcome to Ready to Scale Season 4. Let's get started. Hey guys, welcome to yet another episode of Ready to Scale. I'm Jeanette Robinson, Director of Investor Relations, coming to you from Boston today. And actually, our guest is also joining me from the Boston area, though we're still doing our interview uh, remotely because that's the way we roll nowadays, right? But I'm happy to introduce you to John Burkhart, and that is Dr. John Burkhart. John is a behavioral economist, a neuroscientist, and a strategy and risk management advisor. So you can already tell that this is going to be a fascinating episode, I'm sure. He is the founder and CEO of Capita Neuro Solutions. He's also part of the adjunct faculty in enterprise risk management at Columbia University, as well as a senior advisor in behavioral science at North Find Management. He has his PhD in neuroscience from Wake Forest School of Medicine and his BS in psychology from Duke University. So I would love to say, Dr. John, that you're quite impressive, maybe almost an overachiever. So welcome to the show. Thank you so much. It's great to be here. We're thrilled to have you, definitely. So, you know, to kind of jump in and get everybody on the same page together, can you just kind of give us an overview of exactly what a behavioral economist is and, you know, what that really means? This is a fantastic question because the truly accurate answer is nobody is is exactly sure what the term behavioral economics means. And I don't mean that entirely glib. The term really came into common parlance back in the early 2000s in the wake of Danny Kahneman's receipt to the Nobel Prize in Economics. And then, of course, Richard Thaler and Cass Sunstein and a few others did work. And these were all economists to some degree, people who are working about financial decision making. And so the term behavioral economics really implied the application of learnings and insights from the behavioral sciences to economics. In the last 
10 to 15 years, behavioral economics has come to really mean any kind of applied behavioral science, whether it be in the economic space or in purely just what people are doing. And so it really depends on who you ask, what does it mean to be a behavioral economist? And I will fully confess, I did not start calling myself a behavioral economist until about 2017, when I was invited to a conference and someone said, well, you're a behavioral economist, aren't you? And I said, sure, I'm a behavioral economist. My work historically has not focused on the application of behavioral sciences to economics. It's really been more about how do people make decisions than how can we influence or push those decisions. But in the last four or five years, increasingly, there is room for that in the financial space. And so I guess I'm sort of backing into my title of a behavioral economist. <laughs> well, it sounds very interesting to me, for sure. Maybe also a little scary, uh, the idea that that people, you know, can be manipulated or pushed into certain behaviors because of unknown or unrecognized characteristics or tendencies. But I think that the flip side of that is that we can also utilize that as a strength in recognizing those things within ourselves, and either, you know, choosing to invest and, and build upon those or, you know, choosing to kind of correct them along the way. You know, so to that note, I think, you know, one of the first things that I would really appreciate your insight on is, you know, basically looking into the mindset of investors, right? So I'm very curious, you know, from a psychological standpoint, what attributes you would say that are typically found within an investor mindset that are unique to maybe, you know, other people in the general population? And is that necessarily a good thing or a bad thing? So full disclaimer might be going deep down some rabbit holes here. I'm not certain there's anything that's specifically unique to the investor mindset. I think it's more a direction of many of the intrinsic and inherent decision-making architectures that all humans have. And for whatever reason, whether it be because of natural inclination or because of exposure or happenstance of life, people tend to become directed in this area of, of investing behavior. One of the things that is really important to sort of lay as a foundation here is that most of the decision-making and, and judgment processes that we have are pre-conscious. We're not aware of them. We like to think that we are in firm control and have complete autonomy over all of our decisions. And the simple truth is probably 80 to 90% of the decisions that we make on any given moment are things that we are not consciously aware of. That's not to say we're purely stimulus response organisms, but a lot of the choices we make, we're not even aware of them as we make them. We may think we are, but in many cases, we're actually telling ourselves a story after we have already made those decisions. And this, of course, has enormous consequence on any kind of investing behavior, as you term it, the investor's mindset. We have to remember that all of these decision-making tools we have are evolved in a very different context. The brain is an organ. And as is the case with every organ in our bodies, it's been subject to evolutionary pressures. And the primary imperatives we have are to survive and to reproduce. And these are very binary outcomes. These are things that happen or they don't. And there's not really an imperative on optimization. There's not really any import on gradation or degrees of success because you either survive or you don't. You reproduce or you don't. And 
So our natural tendencies for decision-making are built around these sorts of binary decisions and making sure that we are in a position to do so again tomorrow. Why am I going down this rabbit hole to talk about the investor mindset? Because the most fundamental foundational things in investing, numbers, currency, notions of money, notions of optimization, these did not exist until maybe 10,000 years ago. We're not built for them. And we find ourselves trying to make decisions that we're not really built to make. Largely, investing behavior exists in a sort of dynamic tension between two somewhat opposed tendencies, those being optimism and loss aversion. Optimism, we know the colloquial definition of it, but in a more precise behavioral sense, refers to our tendency to believe that things will turn out better for us than they will for other people than perhaps the baseline probabilities suggest would be warranted. And this is because, well, again, we come back to these survival decisions where if we're still alive today, if we still have a pulse, then we're doing okay. Then what we've been doing to this point in our lives probably is a good idea and is going to keep us alive tomorrow. Now, most of us, of course, don't exist with day-to-day survival decisions, but that's still the decision-making framework we have. Loss aversion is kind of in the opposite direction of this. Loss aversion, in, and this has become a very popular term in the wake of you know, thinking fast and slow by Kahneman and nudge by Thaler. Loss aversion, colloquially put, is the pain of losing $100 is greater than the pleasure of gaining $100. So we tend to avoid losses rather than seek out gains. And again, there's evolutionary imperative here because in a survival sense, you know, a loss frequently meant injury or death. And so not incurring a loss was way more important than having a gain. And so investing behavior exists as this tension of we think things are going to turn out well. And one could argue that this is a prerequisite. This is an essential trait for investing. You know, you don't go into investing if you think you're not going to beat the market. And so we have this optimism that is really the default case until things start to go bad. And then we start going into our loss version, we contract and make sure we minimize our losses. Now, unfortunately, because these are not targeted towards optimized outcomes or figuring out what's the best financial strategy, this can put us into really problematic positions. Optimism can lead us to overextend ourselves. If we think things are going really well and we think that you know we are less likely to have a negative outcome, we can tend to put more assets into a particular cause or chase after long shots. And then loss aversion, when things start going south, we don't want to ride it out. We say, okay, I should sell now, You know, minimize the amount of loss that I have, get out while I can. And of course, these two outcomes of optimism and loss aversion are the worst things you can do. And this is why we say, why everyone says for so long, it's you can't beat the market. This is what, you know, if invest in an index fund, don't ever pull anything out and you'll do better than if you try to play it yourself. And that's why, because we have these built-in tendencies to do things that we really shouldn't in an investing context. And so this is the background. This is the basal mindset, for lack of a better term, that we all deal with. I want to emphasize, this is not a particular form of dysfunction. This is not a particular class of people. This is what we as humans are stuck with, because 100,000 years ago, this kept us alive. and any sort of investment strategy that we have to pursue needs to account for and mitigate against these tendencies. Now, that was a very long-winded sort of 
exploration of a few different concepts. But does that get at what you were asking around? Yeah, no, actually, it's fascinating. It's even more interesting to me now because, you know, there's kind of a couple of different thoughts that I had as you were sharing all of this. So, you know, it's very interesting, first of all, looking at loss aversion. I know that I can speak for myself as a real estate investor, and I'm, I'm sure, you know, other investors have been through it too. So there's a common term that you're, you'll hear thrown around kind of among the land of real estate investors, which is the difference between having a growth mindset and a scarcity mindset. And, you know, one of the initial hurdles that I think the vast majority of investors have to get over when they're kind of early into their investing career is basically what we would coin the scarcity mindset. It's the fear of loss, right? It's the fear of losing. And so it's very interesting to hear you basically kind of talking about the same thing, but we are using different buzz terms, you know, to address it, because it it is one of the very first things that I learned, you know, personally, and I'm sure that other investors have too, that you have to shift in your mind. Because when you operate from a place of fear, there never is gain, there never is progress. And so at a certain point, you know, whether it's what we call an appetite for risk or anything else, the reality is, is that you have to make a conscious decision to get uncomfortable, to push yourself out of the safer choice, which is I would rather save all my money and hide it under a pillow than potentially lose it in order to recognize kind of greater goals. And so You know, it's just really interesting to hear you talking about this from at least, you know, your standpoint. And I think one of the other things, too, that kind of, you know, went off kind of in my mind is a little bit of the difference between risk appetites. So, for example, typically, it's generally believed that, you know, that people that are really active in, say, the stock market and securities and things along those lines have a different appetite for risk than a traditional real estate investor. Traditionally, real estate investors are more conservative. That's why they're not playing the market. Or if they are, you know, it's a very small percentage of their portfolio, you know, the majority of it is still real estate, because some would say that it's not as, you know, as high reward as potentially, you know, getting into the stock market can be. It's also not as much risk, you know, so it's more of a conservative play that I think is, you know, kind of that sweet spot between maybe our need for survival, you know, and our aversion to loss. So just really interesting, you know, kind of looking at it from the different angles and taking it all into account into how it all kind of melts together. But, you know, kind of continuing along that line, that leads to actually another interesting point in the discussion. So before, you know, we hit record, you said something about, you know, kind of the new strategy that's begun to emerge lately as a trend, particularly since the time of COVID with retail investors, which is, you know, the majority of our investors. And, you know, you said that basically the strategy became playing to the players instead of to the market. So I thought that was really interesting, and I would love to hear you expand upon that, as I'm sure our listeners would also. So what do you mean by that? Sure. So as you and I discussed prior to hitting record, my own area of focus has primarily been stock markets, but much of this is really generalizable to any sort of market, whether it be real estate, private equity, foreign exchange, what have you. The COVID time has been I always have to caution myself with how I phrase this. As an academic, I say COVID has been a wonderful time for naturalistic real-world experiments. COVID's horrible. We all recognize this. But it has produced some behavioral extremes and some very odd constraints that have given us some fascinating windows into what people do and do not do or make decisions around and what sort of constraints or opportunities can emerge when we upend our assumptions. Whether you support or 
oppose or, or not oppose, it's, it's, of course, it's come and gone, but think the CARES Act was a bad idea. It is inarguable that it introduced an enormous amount of cash into the pockets of the average American. And while historically investing across all different domains, stock market, real estate, private equity, has really been largely institutional during the COVID time because of a combination of both influxes of cash and a lack of really anything else to do. And there are some interesting dynamics around potentially sports gambling as well, but that's its own conversation. And the loss of an ability. Well, actually, let's talk about that because this really does play into it. Because the, the COVID market rebound has very, very odd dynamics, and it's not really tied to any timeline of salient events in the progression, except for the simultaneous cessation of NCAA tournament, NBA, NFL, MLB, and NHL. And sports gambling is an $800 million a day enterprise globally. And overnight, the most risk positive people in the world had nowhere to put their money. And you can see within a week of this happening, the COVID market rebound began. And this was really the first introduction of a large population of active retail investors acting with some level of coordination, for lack of a better term. It's not, not fully coordinated to the extent that institutions are, but more so than ever had been in the past. And this created a behavioral gravity that pulled in additional people. GameStop had additional facilitating effect on that in terms of making everybody realize, hey, I can take all this CARES Act cash and become a millionaire. Some people did. A lot of people lost everything. But basically, all of this aggregated to create a scenario where, whereas historically, retail investors have not mattered in the overall movement of markets, they're still not the primary force and probably never will be. But they've introduced a level of behavioral volatility that has never existed before. And traditional economists hate this. It drives them mad because it violates all of the traditional assumptions and models of markets. And it's they have to throw up their hands and say, oh, market forces. I, of course, think the term market forces is a joke. It's, it's basically saying we don't know how to factor for this, and therefore we're going to call it market forces. I've argued for a long time, there's no such thing as market forces. There is the behavior of people. What this means is because so much of this volatility occurs because of people, and again, I emphasize, this is not confined solely to stock markets. This occurs in every conceivable realm of investing. You have people, individuals who either alone or in aggregate are making choices and are responding like people. They're not making algorithmic decisions. They're not doing quantitative-based assessment. They're looking at what happens day-to-day, in some cases, moment-to-moment, and they're responding with this loss aversion, with this optimism. And if we want to go really deep down the rabbit hole with dopamine fluctuations based on withdrawal and craving, that's probably its own conversation. And this means that you don't necessarily need to track what is the market going to do. Yes, as a long-term strategy, that is an, a, the optimal way to go. That will keep you largely safe. That will keep you beating inflation. But in short term, you can beat the market reliably based on identifying behavioral fluctuations by understanding what are people going to do when some sort of precipitating event occurs. The challenge, of course, is this is not something you can reliably do day to day. You need to wait for these crux moments, and you can't necessarily predict when they're going to occur. 
for example, monkeypox would be such a crux moment where all of a sudden the dynamics change, introduces a level of uncertainty and a shift in the rules where what people are going to do and how they're going to respond is actually pretty predictable. And you can make plays around that that will give you a good short-term success. Now, this is not a long-term strategy, but it means that in punctate iterations, you can win. You can beat the market. And this is what I mean by playing the players. When I invest and when I work with clients, we don't look at what are the long-term market trends. We have a, a general sort of background, largely conservative defensive strategy for the majority of assets. And then we have a reserve for, we play this when opportunities arise. And we're looking more for when are people going to do something silly? I say that to to be really to draw attention to it. I don't necessarily mean silly or stupid, but it's a good way to remember it. When are people going to do something that is not predicted by market models? And those moments are when you can really just jump in and win. And that's what we mean by playing the players. Fascinating. Fascinating. Very interesting and difficult to do, I'm sure. Requires a fair amount of active day-to-day assessment because these opportunities pop up and you can't plot them out. You have to move on them you know, within a day or two because behavioral gravity kicks in. The rest of the market catches up. Yeah, no, it's extremely interesting. It actually makes me think of a time during COVID, early on in COVID, the vast majority of the major players in investing, if you will, were really sitting on the sidelines for a little while, you know, just kind of trying to figure out, okay, what's going to happen, watching, waiting, what should our next moves be? And we at the time acquired a pretty large and significant asset. And, you know, some might have viewed it as a gamble, and it was a gamble. And it was very interesting to see how it played out. Because at the time, the concerns and the fears that a lot of people had were that no one was going to pay their rent. I mean, evictions were being held. So, you know, the idea or the fear was that properties were going to fail and not be profitable and that it was, you know, just going to be a really difficult time to be a real estate investor. And instead, the opposite happened of what people actually were afraid of and what they predicted, you know, was going to be the outcome of it, which was instead, much to everybody's kind of shock and amazement, honestly, even our own, people began to invest more into their housing. We started to increase rents at astronomical rates. And portions of that was actually not by our own hand, but actually by that of the tenants. You know, we gave people the option, hey, since you're spending so much extra time in your apartment, do you want us to upgrade it and increase your rent now? You know, so you can kind of have like a nicer setup while you're riding through this whole remote new lifestyle of yours, or do you want to wait? And we were shocked. People were like, no, go for it, go for it. So we weren't even raising the rents on them per se. They were doing it to themselves, you know, but this was a whole trend of behavior that I don't think people anticipated. And it was interesting because, you know, it wasn't necessarily that we predicted that. It just frankly turned out, you know, a little bit better than even we thought it would. So it's just interesting. People are incredibly unpredictable. And I find, you know, kind of this particular field that you're in to be very interesting because I'm sure that you probably don't think they're incredibly unpredictable, whereas, you know, me, the layman, I do. But on that note, given the current kind of economic season that we're in, right, it's a very strange place to be. It's not necessarily a buyer's market. It's not a seller's market. Half of us think we're in a recession. Half of us don't. You know, we've got all these contradicting factors, you know, that everyone's looking at. What would you caution investors to be aware of in kind of their own minds, you know, or behaviors, rather conscious or subconscious, when being thrust into periods of uncertainty like this? 
I love how you, you concluded that question with uncertainty, because that really is the driving factor. One of the foundational observations in human behavior is when we aren't sure what the correct choice is, when we're not sure what the correct path or behavior to partake in is, we tend to not make a decision. As I like to say, we punt on making the decision. We, we, we just don't make a call and keep doing what we're doing until we have greater clarity or something forces our hand in one direction or another. And I think that really explains a great deal of what you're describing here of nobody wants to buy, nobody wants to sell, nobody wants to do anything because nobody really knows where are we right now. And this, of course, can potentially lead to good outcomes or can lead to bad because exactly to your point, we don't know where it's going to land. Without having a knowledge of the future, without knowing you know, what will inflation be in a year, in 18 months, what will market returns be in that time? The best advice I can offer is don't fall into those decision traps. Don't fall into the traps of not making the decision. Whatever you do, whether you decide to double down, whether you decide to get out, whether you decide to shift your portfolio to one direction or another, don't do it because you're uncertain or you're not making a decision. I think it is impossible to know the long-term outcome at this point. There's, I mean, everybody has an opinion on that. And actually, this is another decision trap you can fall into. You can find any pundit who's going to agree with what you think. And this, of course, leads to a huge amount of confirmation bias in decision-making. But whatever decision you make, make it as a considered one, not because you just don't know what to do. Thinking it through and trying to decide, you know, what's a good long-term strategy will almost invariably put you in a better position or at least less of a bad position than if you let the market happen to you. I personally have gone fairly defensive through this stretch because I don't know what's going to happen. And it's real easy to go bargain hunting, but who knows what the bargains are actually going to be. You can win, absolutely, if you make the right purchases or right plays, but no one really knows what those are going to be. And I would say additional piece of advice would be to look past the volatile elements. There are certain classes of assets in every shape of market. Again, private equity, real estate, exchange, securities that tend to have some degree of insulation against the current malaise, the inflationary and the uncertainty. There are certain things that are just always going to be necessary. And these tend to be pretty safe places to position yourself to. And I, again, I look at these from a behavioral aspect. What are people always going to want? What are people always going to need? This is perhaps a bit risque for this topic, for this podcast, but I think it's very telling that during, especially the earliest days of COVID, when there was, again, this enormous uncertainty around markets across every domain, all of these things gained at enormous rates because there are certain things people are always going to want. And in periods of uncertainty, they will look for any kind of pleasure or reinforcement that they can get. And this can serve to sort of direct you in terms of what are maybe the safer assets and holdings to hold through uncertain periods. Very interesting. Very interesting. You know, I have to say that all of those are interesting points, but I particularly appreciated when you said, you know, don't let the market happen to you. And I think that's a really good way to 
kind of, for lack of a better term, stabilize yourself in an uncertain time and an uncertain moment and recognize, you know, the difference between being reactive versus proactive and just kind of keeping yourself, you know, really stabilized. I think that's a very good cautionary piece of advice that you just shared with everybody. So this has been super fascinating. I could easily talk to you for like four more hours, but I'm sure that the listeners don't have that much time. (laughs) So last but not least, we have actually arrived to what we call the lightning round, which is five questions that I ask all of the same guests on the show, just to give us a little bit of color into you more as a person beyond all of your brainiac fascinating, you know, tidbits that you shared today. So are you ready? Sounds good. Let's go. All right. So in between all of the stuff that you're doing here, what is your actual hobby? Hobby is music. In a previous life, I actually played in a number of jazz and metal bands. Wow. Interesting. Okay, cool. Very nice. All right. And now, what is something that most people don't actually know about you? Oh, hmm. I am phenomenally double-jointed in all of my hands. (laughs) Uh, I guess that's the best first thing that comes to mind. Yeah. So this has always been pretty easy. Interesting. Interesting. Yes. I believe they call that what hyperflexibility, I believe, is what it's considered. So I always thought it was normal to be able to, you know, bend your thumb to your wrist. And I just recently discovered that's not. So I guess that that serves most people enormously. (laughs) So who knew? All right. We've got a little weird thing in common there. What about as far as a book? What are you currently reading or what book would you highly recommend people should include in their library? What I would highly recommend to everybody is a book called The True Creator of Everything by Dr. Miguel Nicolelis. Dr. Nicolelis is a neuroscientist, and in this book, he explores how the way that the brain processes information creates the reality around us. And it's actually, it may seem a bit out there, but it's one of my touchstone books in investing and financial behavior. Very interesting. I will definitely check that out. What am I reading right now? I'm actually revisiting Robert Cialdini's current revision of Influence. That's a book that I think most of us are probably very familiar with. If, If you haven't read it, you absolutely should. It's in its seventh revision. And in this revision, he's added like two new chapters. So he's not in any way resting on his laurels. So that's always a good read. Very cool. All right. Great. Thank you. All right. And now we also ask this piece of advice from everybody because it's basically, you know, kind of our vision statement for the company. So what is your advice to people that are trying to build an extraordinary life? Don't let fear get in your way. And I think you touched on this earlier. I came across a fantastic quote recently that the best poisons are addictive and kill you piece by piece. The meta poison is comfort. Wow. Very interesting. Very interesting. I do actually... Definitely appreciate that. Like I said earlier, the idea of getting comfortable with being uncomfortable and doing it to yourself on purpose is is not, you know, kind of a normal way of thinking per se. It's a kind of foreign way to go about things. So I can definitely appreciate that. Very cool. Nothing interesting happens where you're comfortable. Couldn't agree more. Could not agree more. Awesome. All right. Well, Dr. John, where can people contact you if they'd like to get in touch? So as you mentioned earlier on, I am the CEO of Capita Neurosolutions. You can look us up at capitaneuro.com, C-A-P-I-T-A-N-E-U-R-O.com. And feel free to email me. My email address is J-B-U-R-K-H-A-R-D-T at capitaneuro.com. 
Perfect. All right. And guys, we'll be sure to include that in the show notes, just in case you didn't have a chance to jot that down. So John, I can't thank you enough for coming on the show. This has been super interesting to me. I really do wish we had longer to discuss it all. But I think that hopefully the listeners have definitely found this to be also thought provoking, and hopefully actually a little bit encouraging and inspiring too, as we all try to figure out kind of how to navigate some of these unknown waters right now against you know, kind of the challenges that exist. And sometimes they might actually be (laughs) ourselves. So thank you so much for taking the time to be here. I really appreciate it. Is there any last little bit of advice or anything else that you just feel like is really important that you want to make sure you get out there? Our brains are wonderful tools. It's the most powerful tool we have. And make sure that whatever you're doing, you are leveraging your brain as best you possibly can. Awesome. Definitely. I call that feeling alive. (laughs) I love it. Yeah, for sure. All right. Great. Well, guys, thank you so much for once again tuning in. We definitely appreciate it. Please don't forget to like, rate, and review the show and let us know more of what you'd love to hear. And in the words of Ellie, be bold, be strong, and keep moving forward. See you next time. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.